0: Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome. This is Carl's Roll Coaster Podcast. Hello, dear friends. Hope this finds you all very, very well. I'm going to be talking about uh, Kurt Cobain, the rise and fall of the legendary lead singer, guitarist and main songwriter of Nirvana and yeah things that happened throughout his career and in Nirvana's career and a few quotes from Danny Kohlberg which was Nirvana's manager back then and yeah I hope you all enjoy it! The 1980s was a decade for popular music The world economy was booming, with the middle class having access to luxury items and being able to afford more. With satellite radio airwaves playing music for all tastes, the emergence of MTV and growth of technology has helped artists propel in new ways. It's the decade that gave us the two largest selling albums of all time, Michael Jackson's Thriller from 1983 and AC DC's Back in Black from 1980. With the current political environment, the record labels assimilation of divergent mainstream and technological music styles being brought in are reasons why the music scene's spectrum has evolved and changed. This has brought not only pop music, but also heavy sounds and new genres into the helping youth identify themselves. Heavy metal, hard rock and glam rock are arguably some of the most popular sellers of the decade. This eventually took a turn in the Northwest, specifically Seattle, where the word grunge, meaning grime or dirt, evolved to become a music genre, fashion style and lifestyle. As a way to potentially confront and demolish the hard rock scene, where the focus was on playing harder, faster and technically, grunge emerged as a response, bringing things to the basics with simple power chord and simple looks. However, it was still heavy enough to capture the same audience entranced by Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, ACDC and Kiss. Many bands evolved from the scene, most notably the likes of Mudhoney, Mother Love Bone, Soundgarden, Stone Temple Pilots. Needless to say, the most influential group of the grunge scene was Nirvana, fronted by Kurt Cobain. In the 1980s dorm room of Evergreen State College, student Bruce Pavitt nurtured and formed the record label Sub Pop. Bruce Pavitt was a DJ at a campus station and started a self-publicized zine called Subterranean Pop, which helped promote underground bands and independent record. These were often accompanied by cassette tape compilations. Jonathan Poneman, Bruce Pavitt's business partner, Borrowed $20,000 to make the label official, and it was formally launched in 1988 as Sub Pop Records LLC. By then, Sub Pop had put out a few releases, including its first LP compilation, Sub Pop 100, and an EP entitled Is Screaming Life by a little known band at the time called Soundgarden. Sub Pop released Nirvana's Bleach, an album recorded in Seattle for around $600 money that was rendered by guitarist Jason Everman, who was listed as a member of the group even though he did not play on the recording. In an interview with Rolling Stone magazine in 1992, Cobain said, We still owe him $600, maybe I should send him off a check. During a time where Poison and Motley Crue were packing arenas, Nobody in the industry saw Nirvana's Bleach as a debut album of a group that was about to change the world. The album itself failed to enter the Billboard 200 when it came out, although it received praise from many critics. Eventually, with the backing of Sonic Youth, the album sold 35,000 copies, despite very little mainstream press. It managed to make an impression on David Geffen's DGC label which ended in him buying the group out of their sub-pop contract. What followed was unprecedented, although Kurt Cobain always had a clear vision of the business and intended to become a superstar. Kurt was a Beatles fan, listening to them over and over again. They'd refer to the band as the B-word, as being a Beatles fan wasn't something cool in the punk world. He would listen as well to Abba, Sabbath, which helped him fuse pop, rock, and heavy metal into Nirvana. DGC and Danny Goldberg did not chase them in Seattle. Nirvana went to Los Angeles searching for management, with a clear vision to hit it big. Danny Goldberg had a young assistant named John Silver, who became Nirvana's manager and ultimately went on to be Dave Grohl's and the Foo Fighters' manager. John had a better understanding of the punk world, and since signing Sonic Youth, Nirvana was a natural acquisition for their roster. Kurt, Dave, and Chris wanted to be in a major company, and they wanted to be connected with the music business at large, but at the same time maintain their integrity, their values, their culture, which they found on Geffen's DGC via Danny and John. At the time, Bleach was buzzing at the scene, and five or six labels were interested in the band. Vanny and John went on a week worth of meetings and conversations, when they finally sealed the deal with Geffen and got Nirvana a deal, which included complete control over all creative elements. Although it is true that neither Kurt nor his bandmates, record company and executives could foresee what Nirvana was to become, Stories saying that if the band hadn't reached its status and magnitude, Kurt may still be alive, can't be sustained. He suffered from depression and was a regular drug user before fame. He also had 100% control over everything Nirvana did. He was not only the lead singer, guitarist and songwriter, but he made the decisions on which producers to use, which is studios to record, as well as answering all the interviews and designing t-shirts merch for the band. He had a very sophisticated understanding of stardom and what was involved in the process. He was involved on every single decision the label and management had on his career. The label gave way for his artistic side to flourish, and with the support of MTV, Nevermind's first single, Smells Like Teen Spirit, climbed the Billboard charts. Samuel Bayer directed the video for the song that went into heavy rotation on MTV, bringing a whole new audience to the band. It was a crucial moment for the band's career as it was a video that defined a lot of what the rock industry would become. Kurt would say to the band and label that he wanted Nirvana to be as big as the Pixies, which sold around 300,000 copies. That was the kind of success they imagined, although the management did hope they could be as big as Jane's Addiction. When Smells Like Teen Spirit hit the first college radio station, they started to realize they could become much bigger than anyone could ever anticipate Nevermind climbed much faster than the single, first appearing on the album charts at number 144 in October 1991. This also was when Kurt met Courtney Love, his future wife and mother of his daughter Frances Bean Cobain. And climbing to the top 40 just three weeks later, manager Danny Goldberg recalled in Carrie Borzillo's book that when the album hit number 65, it was clear to me, says Danny Goldberg, that they were going to be the biggest band in the world. In that moment, it had, the, it had gone outside the coat of that indie rock scene. Before the month was over, the album would be certified gold with 500,000 copies sold. The band and the management that initially only aimed to sell 200,000 copies of the album went on to become a 2 million seller within 4 months of its release, dethroning Michael Jackson's Dangerous from the top of the charts. It was no small achievement having a grunge punk act on number 1 and taking the place of the King of Pop. Nirvana publicist Susie Tennant said, I was shocked, because the underground world of music just never crossed over. These were the days of hair bands. It was like this unbelievable ride that you were on, and it just kept going. Cobain's framework was fairly complicated, as he wasn't just a typical punk artist, even though he loved those values and the sense of community and integrity involved. Kurt knew many people from all walks of life, and show different sides of himself to different people. The management perspective and how they interacted with him was always based on a successful character, whom they could elevate to be to the next level possible. Cobain made hundreds of decisions to increase the likelihood of that happening and continued to do so, even though the attention would be, at times, painful and stressful. From choruses to album covers, to designing the t-shirts, the very sophisticated way he handled himself in his interviews is admirable. Being aware of the t-shirt he was wearing while being photographed and knowing which songs should be singles. That's the kind of eye to the detail Kurt had on working towards success. He would spot Pearl Jam's video on MTV on a specific day, having more rotation than Nirvana's, and he would call management inquiring why was that. He continued for years, alongside management, making decisions to ensure that the success kept its momentum. One example was remixing the singles on Nirvana's follow-up in neutro, the storyboarding for an extremely ambitious heart-shaped box and doing the unplugged for MTV, ultimately expanding the lifespan of Nirvana's presence on the channel. There were times after Nevermind became famous that Kurt would sometimes say that he thought the album was produced too commercially. Label and management could never really figure out if he really meant it or not, considering he controlled every aspect of the record and all its records for that matter. General consensus is that he was fairly content with the final results of his art. He controlled the album, worked hard on it and put a lot of thought into every detail of the body of work being produced back then. An interesting fact about his sense of his value as an artist can be attested to when he released an anthology of his earlier work, Incesticide, in 1992. Ultimately, all the success and all his artwork led to him not enjoying all the results that came with success. For example, being recognized when going out in public, the media writing about his personal life, the self-inflicted pressure to maintain successful and the fact that he didn't conquer his inner pain, leading to his heroin addiction. Danny, being the closest of the management team to Kurt, alongside John Silva and Gary Gersh, the A&R guy at Geffen at the time, realized they had a serious issue that needed addressing immediately. Then he proceeded to call David Geffen, who gave him Tim Collins, the Aerosmith manager back then, phone number. Tim had managed to get himself and Aerosmith sober. This was a real success story for the time in terms of people who had had drug problems coming out creatively, healthy, and somehow reborn. Collins made recommendations and they staged an intervention. It was complex and even more so as Courtney Love, Kurt's wife, had just discovered she was pregnant. Initially, the intervention accomplished its goals and the following six or seven months were, for the most part, relatively, relatively happy. Kurt and Courtney were clean, had money, a very successful band and a sense of accomplishment. A new crisis hit when a damaging article came out in Vanity Fair and a similar one in Melody Maker, accusing Courtney of shooting heroin while she was pregnant. It was extremely painful for the couple and it also threatened their legal custody for a couple of months and that might have been one of the reasons to slip back into heroin use. What followed next involved a manager offering a helping hand to Kurt, making sure that he was aware that he needed to tackle his drug use and that both the label and management would back him up. Danny had mentioned that he felt he could have been a bit more patient the last time he saw Kurt face-to-face during an intervention he hosted at Kurt's home, which was called by Courtney, trying to persuade him to go back to rehab. Kurt felt invaded and ambushed, and unfortunately, everything was probably a little too late. Danny goes on to say that when he finally got back home, he called Kurt back and said sorry for rushing out so quickly. They talked about their kids and Danny said he loved Kurt and that was the last time the two of them would ever speak. It's impossible to say if anything could have been different and if there was something anybody could have done to prevent such tragedy. Nobody really knows or has an answer on how to prevent suicide. Kurt Cobain had a great team of people and all the resources to try and fight his demons. He left behind a wife and a daughter and a legion of fans. He conquered and earned everything he worked for. In a way, he hoped that by succeeding, his personal issues would vanish. Ultimately, success didn't make him unhappy, but it certainly failed to make him happy. Nirvana is one of the biggest selling bands of all time, having sold over 75 million records worldwide. With over 25 million RIAA-certified units, The band is also the 80th best-selling music artist in the United States. I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation, this podcast, as much as I did doing it. So, if that's the case, please do follow on Instagram at RollerCoasterCarl, myself at Carl Casagrande, on Twitter, same thing. Facebook, same thing. Uh, Do subscribe. Do subscribe on iTunes, subscribe on Spotify. That's very, very much appreciated. Thank you and have a great, great day. Cheers. Bye-bye.